Well, welcome this week to Cool, Connected and Committed. I am thrilled to welcome Ginny McDonald, who is the Head of Public Engagement for Christian Aid and author of an inspirational new book, God is Not a White Man. Ginny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. So we're um, each week kind of unpacking different aspects of leadership and having a real focus on um, diversity, inclusion, equity, anti-racism right throughout this, this year and have had some brilliant conversations with school leaders and, and right across the country about this. So we're thrilled to kind of unpack this, um, this book uh, with you that's coming out really soon. I wonder, I wonder if you could... Start by telling us like what what motivated you to write it and a little bit about your story. Yeah, so this book has been a few years in the making. Um, I wrote a previous book in 2013, um, which was on body image among women of faith. And in writing that book, um, quite a lot of um, what I wrote about ended up being um, actually about race and body image um, and how those things impact on each other um, and what it's like as a black woman growing up in a white majority society. Um, so this book, God is Not a White Man, um, came out of a place where I wanted to tell the story of what it is like to be um, an ethnic minority, racial ethnic minority in a place that is made for um, whiteness, but also what it is to be a woman in this in a world made for men as well. So those two ideas of kind of race and gender um, and recognizing that actually um, my experience as um, a black woman, um, I've got very particular experiences that have um, impacted on my experience of my faith tradition, um, including how I view God um, how I imagine God looks, but also interracial marriage, um, 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 the kind of violence against black bodies, perceptions of Africa, and also there's a big part of the book which is about education and my experience um, as a black woman within uh, educational institutions as well. Mm, that's great, and that 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 comes across really strongly in in, in the book and this idea that. Um, our own stories really shape the way obviously we see the world but also our construct of what we might imagine um god to be or to look like or to our experience um of god or what we perceive that that might hold that whole thing might be might be about um i mean one of the things that i guess that struck me about it is that often we can not even deliberately, but but inadvertently kind of push aside stories that are maybe not resonant with our own and give a particular prominence to stories that reinforce a particular narrative. I suppose that is religious tradition, ultimately, what I've just described. But how, you know, how might we, if we're actually to make any proper change in this area, how might we actually change whose stories appear the most important and how who's got the loudest voice I, I guess yeah exactly that so I can talk about um talk in the book about stories in this context as the ways in which we as humans experience God I don't think we can talk about revelation of God 
without human experience. So I think that um, our human experience um, in every context is really, really important. Our individual stories help to shape um, the world. Um, the thing is that if you were to walk into, let's say most churches in the UK on a Sunday morning, you would think that God was only revealed in very particular and narrow forms of human identity and namely through the thoughts and experiences of white men of a certain age. And so, um, and that comes across in not just the stories that are told, um, whether you're at the front of the church or at the front of a classroom, um, but in the voices that, um, that we use. So the theologians that are quoted, um, the academics that are quoted, and what that leads to is, is, is kind of God made in, in a certain image. And, and that, that God excludes many of the rest of us. And I think most people of faith or most Christians would obviously be shocked to think that, um, that there is this view that God values certain people, certain stories um, over others. So I think there's a practical thing that needs to be done, which is we need to widen the stories that we tell. We need to find um, other voices, other academics, other theological ideas from different cultures about human, ex human experience from outside this kind of narrowly defined bubble mm. and i and i guess there are actually as you say that there's pati there's particular implications for um a, a, a church context for sure but also in um in a school context where collective worship is taking place in a church of england school or even to some extent in um re teaching how we might frame um the concept of God, it, it, you're right, in typically masculine terms, at least. Um, how, I mean, how, how, can we, how can we tell a, tell a more holistic story, do you think, in, in a school context, particularly to children who are obviously forming their understanding at a very young age? Yeah, I, I think that kind of very practically as educators, I think at the very basic level, expanding our reading lists is key and expanding the curriculum. So taking a little extra time to find, um, you know, quotes or theories that back up what we're trying to say, but just from a, diff a variety of different sources. I think that's how we can make lasting change. If I think about my own experience um, in school, uh, sixth form and university, not once did I ever have a black teacher. Um, and I didn't really notice that <laughs> until very recently. Right. I think um, if I think about what that means, that to me therefore means that um, teachers, people with knowledge are white people and they aren't people like me. So I'm, so I'm immediately um, forced into a place of kind of feeling other to that. So um, I think it's also about representation and um, not just in uh, the stories that we tell, the voices that we use, but who is actually communicating to us which is really important yeah absolutely and and so and, and some of that is um you, yeah as you say quite practical and you know re relatively straightforward to make some deliberate changes we just have to be deliberate about ma making them whereas some of what you're talking about is much deeper and systemic and at the roots really i mean in the in in, in the book you've, you've got a, you know this really excellent call for a wholesale re-examination of the church's racist roots only then can we plant new trees i mean that's a really 
powerful metaphor of what we're, what we're seeking to do. Um, in, in an educational context, we'd often talk about the flourishing of children and the flourishing of adults, which, which again, builds off of the same sort of knowledge. But how might, how might education leaders play their part in this idea of planting new trees, of kind of acknowledging that there's some real problems in our roots and, and actually start starting to plant new trees? What might, what might their role be in it? So, so I think we know that there is this kind of media narrative that on the one hand says that educators are on this kind of woke agenda of decolonizing the curriculum. And on the other hand, that our curriculum is not diverse enough. And I realize that I don't, I don't know what the reality is because all I can think back to is my own education where I didn't hear the whole story um, about the church's racist roots, about Britain's role in the slave trade and the fact that it wasn't just um, uh, to end the slave trade. When thinking about roots, it strikes me that for trees with effective roots to be planted, educators need to plant those seeds as early as possible because once the roots have taken root, as it were, it, it becomes very difficult to change what the tree becomes, <laughs> to stretch the met metaphor. I've got a, I've got a three-year-old son and I'm very aware that the books that we read him now shape how he views the world, whose stories he thinks are more important. I'm, I'm really thankful that he has more diverse stories than I ever did as a child. Um, but I'm finding that there's a lot of unlearning that I'm having to do because of all the kind of decades of learning that I've done before. So I think the, the roots need to be planted as early as possible um, in order to kind of plant those new trees. That, that's, that's so helpful actually in terms of, but, I, mean, I mean, one of the, whole, one of the big major challenges of this whole, this whole space is that you need to, we, we need to somehow combine like a real urgency of action and real change now. Um, but we also need to make sure that that just doesn't become tokenistic and just gesture bait because unless we take some of the much more systemic issues you know, much more seriously, it'll only ever be like scratching the surface of the of the issue, or you know, to you know, to go back to the the roots or the plants analogy. You know, it would only ever be sort of pruning the branches of the tree, right, or you know, making sure the flowers come out in a different way than than actually di diving in and saying, no, there's actually something deeper that that's going on here. And I, I think your 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 idea of you know that vision for children and having a having a better start in that sense is it it is really important. But I, I guess it also does require us as leaders to take a pretty yeah pretty challenging look at ourselves in terms of our own narrative and what we actually you know actually do reinforce. Even if we're not you know there'll probably be very few leaders who set out to say well I'm trying to base my curriculum on you know really racist principles you know that's my that's my aim to, to highlight discrimination wherever possible you know probably very few but probably no one would say that of course but there's there's so much still there that that that, that is doing that right yeah absolutely and I, and I think it's and that's where I, where I talked about the kind of effort that we need to go to it takes being really alert and I think some of this stuff once you see it you you can't unsee it, but because of the systemic nature of um, well, race, um, it's very easy for us to miss. 
um, I think about um, my own son in trying to raise a feminist male child, um, I, I have some kind of views about what I think that he thinks about the role of women and the role of men. Yeah. But I find him saying some things sometimes, um, like mummy get back in the kitchen, um, for example, that I don't know where they came from. Right. And it was easy, it's easy, it's easy for me if I'm not paying attention for me to um, perpetuate certain stereotypes or um, things that are ingrained while thinking that I am being very intentional about shaping his views of gender roles, for example. So it takes being on, on high alert and it's probably not easy and a bit tiring, but yeah, <laughs> it's important. That's a, that's a really good example, actually, where, 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 um, yeah, where, where, that's a fascinating question of where did, where did he get that from? You know, that's a, that's a question parents would often ask, I guess. Um, where did you pick that up from? Or where did you, uh, and, and actually, yeah, there are all kinds of influences on young people's lives, aren't there? That, uh, you know, so that's one of the challenges actually of the whole, um, the whole area about curric curriculum reform, because it's, it's actually quite easy. It, it is relatively easy to take, you know, history as a subject, for example, and review it in the light of how we read, you know, colonial Britain, for example, and re review and evaluate where messaging needs to be changed. And, and, you know, that's a relatively straightforward process, but it, it possibly has some limitations in the sense that it can be seen as quite an easy, ah, well, if we teach, the corrected curriculum in that sense in schools and everything else will be okay. Whereas some of the wider messages in, in society and re reinforced in a different way, don't I guess? Yeah, I, I think that kind of question of where did you pick up those things from? I think recognizing that young people and children, they pick up these things by nature of being human beings who, you know, who listen to things, who step outside of their doors. And that's the nature of systemic racism. And that's why it is systemic because it is pervasive and it's not easy to protect um, ourselves as adults, let alone children from that. Um, and I think it is also a long game. So none of this stuff is going to turn around. It's only kind of gradually over the years, over the decades, that I think we'll be able to see real change. Mm. And yeah, that I mean, how, how do we hold on to, um, you know, the, you know, you, you quote in the book this 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 um, you know really familiar and well brilliant phrase from Martin Luther King: the fierce urgency of now. Like the the the, the sense that you know, if my house was literally on fire now. I would want to do something about it now, not you know wait to review my policy on fire safety you know, and over the next ten years you know make improvements. I'd want you know how as the you know, how do how do you how do you think we can sustain the pursuit of racial justice in in our society? Yeah, I uh, I think you see I see it in conversations all the time, whether it's on social media or in certain newspapers, where clearly some people are tired of it um, and wish that it would just go away, and or think that we've already fixed it. So why are we still talking about it? And I think it takes agitators and it takes people um, who are really passionate about 
and making that change right now um, for, for us to be able to move forward. Um, I think partly, this, partly it helps to realize that it's already too late. <laughs> so if we don't um, stay alert, if we're not acting urgently now, things are going to get worse rather than better and recognizing that every kind of urgent action we take now has um, kind of consequences for the future um, of our communities, of our schools, mm. our nation. So we really do need to take action now. But I also think it takes being um, comfortable with discomfort, the discomfort of that, mm. and the pain that sometimes come with that comes with that um, in order to make that change urgently now. Yeah, because I really resonate with that because it it it's trying to find a sort of energizing balance of the two isn't it so that one retains like the 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 well not retains the momentum even but gathers the momentum that's needed um but but also recognizes that you know to your point you know you didn't you weren't taught by a black teacher that's um you know that's a fact from your childhood you know if if that were to become you know, different, you know, different story for a, a next generation, like your own children, for example, or my children, you know, that, that would actually take quite a big change in the teaching profession, mm. uh, which is not achievable in a kind of, oh, okay, right, we need some new teachers for September. Let's, you know, make one simple change to make that, it's, it's actually quite a complex thing to do, but one that we can't let ourselves off the hook just because it's complex you know it requires like the a longer term commitment which i think organizations actually you know tend not to commit to that many things long term because we're in a quite short-term performance type culture and it's whether it be in politics or business or school or or, or whatever that there is there's the pressure of the now isn't there which often sort of hinders the pursuit of the longer term i guess um have you, I mean, what gives, you, what gives you hope, I guess? I mean, the book comes across as very very cha challenging and hopeful in a kind of equal measure. What, give, what gives you hope personally in this, in this space? So I really think young people do give me hope. So on that kind of um, urgency point, I am 37 and I really recognise the difference between me as someone who writes and speaks about racial justice and the kind of agitation uh, and the kind of passion that comes from younger people in their twenties or even in their teens, who are actually so far ahead of me, um, of, of how I was at that age, because I think society is changing. Um, so I, I think I do have hope um, that young people will change things. I think gradually, <laughs> as people get older, um, move on. I just think that the, the world will be a different place um, once younger people are, are in charge. Um, I think that the young people at my church, for example, when I've spoken to them about racial justice, I start at such a basic level, thinking that that's the level that they're at. Yeah. But then they tell me what they've been reading or in, in feminist club or how they've been demanding the decolonization of their curriculum. And I'm just amazed because in some ways they're just, yeah, they're just far ahead of my generation when it comes to these issues. That gives me immense hope. 
Um, I did a talk last year during lockdown, a virtual talk during Black History Month at a local primary school. And I asked them to describe what God looked like. And I was amazed by their answers um, because I thought they'd say, they'd kind of describe Father Christmas, you know, or, you know, a, a white old man with a beard. But none of them said that. Um, one of them said, I think God looks like a yin yang sign with half black hair and half white hair. One, another person said, um, I believe, think God looks like a ball of energy. <laughs> um, and I had to thought that they would have these same perceptions in my head of what God might look like. Um, um, but their answers were just far more imaginative than that. And I think that gives me incredible hope for the future. Yeah, that's that, that, that's great. I think that I really resonate with that, and, and and certainly we, yeah, we 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 know that if we, well, we know the more courageous organisations are to give responsibility and space and authority and author to to younger people, the more likely they are to make more systemic change. I mean, that's just whether that be, you know, politics or a university or a football club or a what, whatever you know that that, that, that that's what nat naturally happens isn't it but I think often we're we're pretty slow can be pretty slow I should say to place children and young people at the center I mean schools generally do that reasonably well actually there won't be many schools listening to this who don't have you know some kind of leadership development stuff going on for young people or school councils or eco groups or you know that'd be pretty not pretty normal whereas you know for many many organizations including the church can, can be pretty slow to put the voice of children and young people at, at the center we we found um you know we've 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 recently launched as many listeners will know the national younger leadership groups and like they in our, in our first session with them last um last time we talked about what kind of church they would want to see and it was it was really interesting to and not surprising to see that you know these issues of inclusion and particularly race were like a real red line for them you know what it what it wasn't like it was it wasn't even like oh we could get over that um because we understand the you know the wider christian narrative and are really drawn to the you know the unique claims of Jesus. Despite that, it was a kind of a real red line. I, I felt in what they were saying that if we're not able to be clearer on that and more in inclusive, and, and as you say, reshape some of our thinking and practice, it's you know maybe the even the construct of faith in the first place is a bit of a non-starter for many young people. I don't know if you, you resonate with that, and I found that kind of you know pretty. Yeah, pretty challenging, actually. Um, yeah, and I think we um, we definitely need that um, in order to keep the momentum up. Is the kind of younger people um, pushing us to do better on that kind of inclusivity? Um, because I, I agree, people in my church couldn't fathom being part of a church where anyone would be excluded um, or that wouldn't be talking quite a lot of the time about and the importance of inclusion and the importance of diversity. So I think, um, I just hope that they don't kind of lose that zeal as they, <laughs> they get older, um, because I think we need that, we need that passion, we need that in order to move forward.
Yeah, definitely, definitely. No, that's really that that's really really encouraging, um, Janine. And and for those listening, like really get a hold of this book. It's excellent. It's gonna shake you up. It's gonna challenge you. It's gonna provoke you. Um, but it is also gonna give you some real hope. And as as you are leading in so many different contexts in your schools, um, and also in relation with your local churches. Yeah, this is an absolutely crucial read. So um, it's out 27th of May, um, available for pre-order. Get your hands on a copy. I fully, really recommend it. So Chini, thank you so much for joining us today. And we look forward to continuing the conversation and we are cheering you on in all you're doing to um, be such a prophetic and influential voice in this space. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Mm-hmm.